Welcome to the Urban History Podcast. I'm Andrew Needham. I teach history at New York University. And I'm Lily Geismer. I teach history at Claremont McKenna College. And today we are very excited to have as our guest David Hewson to discuss his new book, Progressive Inequality, Rich and Poor in New York, 1890-1920. And it's a terrific study of cross-class encounters in New York City during the progressive era. So we're very excited to talk with him. Um, and David is going to be teaching at NYU in the fall. So we'll have a chance to talk to him about that as well. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Maybe you can start us off by talking about how you came to do this book. So what brought you to the progressive era? What brought you to your concern with class and inequality? You know, it did start as my dissertation. And in fact, the very first anecdote in the book, the story of this charity dinner at Madison Square Garden where wealthy New Yorkers bought tickets to watch the poor eat on the arena floor, um, was in fact the first bit of research that I did in graduate school for a research seminar. Wow. So it was really, um, seemed sort of destined from the beginning of graduate school. But I mean, actually the origins of the project go back much longer and are kind of personal. Uh, my family moved to New York City in the mid-80s, and for better or for worse, my parents sent me to a private school, and this was at the same time that my mother is a journalist, and she was covering homelessness in New York, welfare, child foster care systems, and so forth, and the experience of going to school during the day with sort of the sons and daughters of investment bankers and corporate lawyers, and then coming home and hearing these stories about people who were really living on the margins of the city um, created a sort of lifelong cognitive dissonance in my mind about class and, and inequality and how it operates in, in the United States. So I think that sort of embedded a set of questions that I came into graduate school planning to explore. Did you start the project interested in studying New York? I did start off wanting to study New York and I can probably claim no more noble instinct than the New York City boys' provincialism. <laughs> um, but it seemed to make sense as well for you know, reasons that I talk about a little bit in the book. I think inequality in New York in the progressive era is a particularly evocative petri dish to see how the dynamics of inequality and class play out on a personal level. And, you know, that was something that I was really, really committed to doing in my dissertation was telling stories of people and of people interacting with each other. Uh, it was something that I felt was missing a little bit from the historiography, and I, and I thought that, you know, what better place to set this in if I'm looking for crazy, zany stories than New York? When you came into graduate school, were you interested in the progressive era? I was definitely interested in the progressive era from the get-go, in part because I had been, uh, before I applied to graduate school, waking up every morning and reading the cover of the New York Times and thinking to myself, why are we reliving the progressive era? Uh, <laughs> the sort of celebration of philanthropy and charity-based solutions to poverty that were uh, very au courant during the Bush administration, the projects of U.S. imperialism abroad. There were all sorts of elements that were coming together in my head and driving me a little nuts, to be frank. And it was part of the motivation for applying to graduate school to begin with. Uh, you know, the progressive era is, is a tautology, right? We hear the name progressive era and we automatically assume that its outcomes were all progressive. And indeed, some of them were. Uh, the beginnings of the regulatory state, which removes or begins to remove child labor, uh, the creations of workman's compensation, and so forth, you know, all, all the good stuff of the progressive era. But 
since Gabriel Kolko, who just passed away uh, a couple weeks ago, I felt like as a discipline, historians had not taken up this strongly revisionist approach to the progressive era in productive ways. And I mean, I had my own gripes with the way Kolko did it. So it seemed to make sense to, to throw myself into it. Yeah, I mean, one of the really powerful arguments in your book is this notion that through the experience of the progressive era, America's bourgeois elite corporate leaders learned how to kind of talk about inequality in ways that were useful to them. So in the end of your book, I saw all of these moments of the evocation of corporations working in the public interest, even a kind of notion of corporate personhood, right, that seems really uh, <laughs> relevant today. So in the battles of the progressive era and these very particular kind of labor battles you talk about, is there a kind of learning process going on by America's corporate elite? Yes, and I think there, there are different ways of narrating that learning process in that period. I think there's a fairly strong contingent of people who think that corporate leaders were learning from the Europeans about how to better manage society. Others say that in the sort of organization thesis, they were fed up with unbridled competition because it was so destructive of profit and of the kind of margins that they wanted. And I think those stories tend to leave out this experience of real conflict and encounter, violent encounter often with arrestive working class collective movements that are either structurally organized or are more spontaneous in the way that they emerge, although they emerge in a historically specific context. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking of Daniel Rogers' story of these transatlantic reform elites. If these people are talking to each other across the Atlantic, they're also existing in this very particular place that's riven with both conflicts and daily violence that also kind of shapes their thinking. What do you think that that does to them, and what does that daily violence do to the workers? You know, the way that I try to answer that question is to think to myself, how does the experience of bourgeois elites today, opening up the newspaper and reading stories about uh, Bangladeshi factories collapsing or uh, workers struggling or corporations taking advantage of loopholes in tax law affect the way that they think about class and about inequality and try to transpose it. I had to do a research project for Beverly Gage, one of my dissertation advisors, when I was in graduate school. She asked me to do a canvas of newspapers between 1877 and 1920 for any story relating to terrorism or bombing. The volume of these stories is absolutely astounding. and. I got this sense while I was doing that project of this being part of a social reality that is being experienced not only by the workers who are in the main the victims of those bombings, uh, but also in the main the perpetrators of those bombings and the capitalists and businessmen who are viewing it as an assault on their property and on their prerogatives. I've read the article in which that research must have produced Beverly Gage's that article on terrorism. It's, it's profound. And one of the things is that she talks about that in a national level, but how do you think the sort of particularities of New York City is affecting the kind of understandings of both class violence and also possible collaboration? Well, the possibility for collaboration emerges in part from the intimacy of the violence in a place like New York and the sense of variety and diversity you know, that you don't get in a place like, for instance, Pullman, right? A true company town 
there's not a lot of love lost between workers and capitalists. Whereas in New York, you have people, I think, of goodwill who are trying very hard to understand why there is so much violence in their city. And often the easiest recourse is to a set of assumptions about class and meritocracy and social Darwinism, which of course is very popular, reaching the height of its popularity at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. But there are also people who reject that, who I think look beyond it and have experiences of communing with people across the class divide that give them a sense of human possibility. And I'm thinking here about people like Lillian Wald, people like Jacob Schiff, who does much of the funding for the Henry Street Settlement in downtown New York that I read about in the book. And I think those kinds of contacts are impossible, or maybe not impossible, but they're certainly less likely to happen outside of a city in general. Um, but I, I think in particular, they're far more likely to occur in a city as densely populated as New York. It's worth remembering also that you know New York in that period was, or at least Manhattan, was far more densely populated than it is today. David, I'd like to talk about the density of New York. One of the things, I mean, this is a awkward, horrible segue, probably. Um, <laughs> but one of the things. Let's do it. Let's do your, it. Your book, your book is densely populated, right? I mean, your book is one of the real pleasures. Nice of work reading. for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank I you. think that was a perfect segue. Yes. There we go. Um, the uh, one of the cool things about your book is that it is so densely populated with actual people who come from a variety of class positions. They aren't these archetypes, right, who exist to stand for the whole. They exist as actual kind of conflicted people with pursuits that do not always line up exactly with what they intend. I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about the, the process of who you chose to follow and the process of finding out about people not only like Lillian Wald, but some of the labor organizers who probably don't have the same kind of biographical paper trail? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it was really a process. I'm sure this will this will come as no surprise to a group of professional historians, but it was really just in the process of doing research that I discovered these people. And there were, for as many people as show up in the book and have some kind of description of their life and background and their trajectory in New York. I mean, I'm thinking of in the first few chapters, you know, I try to follow the story of this guy, uh, Solomon Kleinrock, who participates in this arson fraud to burn down the saloon that he runs. And for every one of those people that I was able to find the ship manifest that he came over from Germany on and the trial transcript that included all sorts of information about his background and, and this exchange of letters between him and the central perpetrator of the arson fraud, there were probably half a dozen whom I tried to find and pursue through, you know, I mean, Ancestry.com, of course, is an incredibly powerful research tool, you know, ProQuest in and of itself, just looking for, I mean, not, this book would not have been possible without the kind of research tools that have only begun to feel their power in the last 20 years. So did you start, you said when you were describing creating your this as a dissertation project that you were interested in people, did you start out with the idea that you were going to focus on people? as a sort of driving uh, research agenda? Yes. 
So I like telling stories about people. I prefer <laughs> telling stories about people. I, I like find, reading stories about people. <laughs> I, I find people endlessly fascinating and confusing and maddening uh, in in both history and contemporary life. So uh, on a basic level, it was not some kind of great historiographical revelation that I wanted to write about people. It, it, it just um, what emerged from that desire to tell stories about people was an observation in the historiography that there were very few works as far as I could tell, that really looked at wealthy people and working class people encountering each other and struggling with each other in more than a way that was incidental to the argument of the book. I think there, there are a few exceptions to that in progressive era historiography, but for the most part, when you look at the vast body of work in progressive era history, there are stories about particular class of people in the way that class experience evolved over time. Why do you think that is? Because I, I found um, it's so exciting to read about these kind of cross-class collaborations, but it made mm -hmm. me think about how rare they are within not just the literature of the progressive era, but literature, in the, really the entire scope of American history, probably with the exception of slavery, would be a place where there's a little bit more on that, those kinds of dynamics. But right. particularly in the post-war period, which both Andrew and I look at, there's very little. Right. Well, I think part of that has to do with the difficulty that Americans in general, and I think American historians in particular outside of labor history, have with invoking the idea of class in American history. I think that as historians, we're not immune to the kind of basic ideological assumptions of American democracy, one of which is, I think, the myth of a classless democracy and the desire to tell a story of fluid social mobility. And I think, you know, it, it's only been recently that people like Sven Beckert have started writing about the bourgeoisie as a discrete class. But you were talking earlier a little bit about the ways in which labor historians, in particular coming out of the new social history, uh, sometimes tended to romanticize the working class in ways that are also ahistorical or have more to do with the particular politics of the historian's moment than the politics of the times that they study. And I, I don't know why else. I mean, I think it, it's in terms of, of the research, it's not easy to find a collection of these moments within a certain span of time that is legible to the discipline as a discrete period in American history and say something about it. I think one of the, the really important components of the book for me and where I would strongly recommend to, to anyone to read it um, is people who sort of dreaded reading about the progressive era during our exams and then teaching it when you do the surveys. I, I feel like every time I have to relearn it, it's sort of a daunting exposure. The people really give a point of entry in a way that's fundamentally powerful. And I have to say that you really made me fundamentally rethink how I understand the progressive period. And I think that this sort of challenging the idea of what is progressive and that really embedded into the progressive era is this deep-seated forms of inequality was so powerful. And so where it's just a really amazing project. Thank well, you so much. That's, that's, that's really, really nice of you to say. I just want to echo, I mean, one of the things that, just to borrow another Daniel Rogers thing, I mean, like one of the, things that I really liked about your book is it takes the kind of in search of progressivism away from this question of who counts as a progressive, 
Right. Um, and, you know, what is progressivism really about? And kind of redirects you to, to think about how did these variety of different people grapple with a set of problems in a particular place right. that are more and more evident at this moment in time? And what are the different ways that different people approach these problems? And how did they fail? Because, uh, I mean, this, you know, I mean, the book's a lovely book about failure and its enduring consequences. And I mean, I think that that's a really valuable task within the, within the historic graffiti to teach about not, not personal failure, but a way that there's a kind of imaginative failure. Uh, right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, thank you for that, first of all, but also I feel like another way of saying it might be that it's a book about narrowly missed success. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of the cross-class collaborations that I researched and became sort of intimately familiar with in the progressive era were deeply inspiring in, mm -hmm. in ways that one wishes people would look to those moments in the progressive era as examples to be improved upon, but examples nonetheless of how we can begin to understand each other's experiences a little bit more intimately and understand their relation to structures of power that reproduce inequality. One thing um, I found exciting about the, the book was that so many studies of the progressive era sort of um, seem to be like telescoping to the New Deal. I mean, so this mm -hmm. idea that that's the sort of end point, that everything that happens in the progressive era then like all of a sudden gets realized during the, the New Deal. And I don't, right. I, I thought that sort of taking that idea out of it so we can sort of get beyond that somewhat closed understanding. To me, the, the problem with, with telescoping to the New Deal, and I totally agree with you that there's there's a lot of that literature, and there's good reason that that literature exists, you know, as actually, I should say, an early reviewer of my book, Gabe Winant, pointed out that I don't talk as much as I could in the book about how wealthy or bourgeois activists during the progressive era, some of them wind up populating the New Deal agencies of the federal government, which is, you know, these are important connections to draw. But I think the one of the problems with telescoping to the New Deal is that it simply occludes or forgets that the 1920s happened mm -hmm. <laughs> and that there were consequences of the progressive era in the 1920s <laughs> and not only in the 1930s and 40s. And that those consequences included things like the repeal of the anti-child labor law at a federal level. Businesses actually come on the ascendant again, and this idea that the progressive era solved many of these problems of sort of corporate predation of the Gilded Age is problematic if you wind up looking much more closely at the 20s and what the progressive era actually wrought in a more immediate sense. Well, and I think it gives, I mean, my understanding, given the components of your argument that sort of address these questions of how embedded inequality became in efforts of charity and other forms of progressive era reform, gets it a more continuous narrative. So it addresses why the New Deal doesn't solve systemic inequality either, and why there's this sort of ongoing dilemma that has become more, even more systemic today. Right. You know, Ira Katznelson's new book obviously does a really good job of showing some of those internal dynamics of the New Deal that ultimately wrought a kind of reproduction of inequality, particularly racial inequality, in the mid-century. And I think it's part of the story that cannot be left out of the progressive era either, the way in which well-intentioned people who do a lot of good, who make a huge difference in 
working people's lives, in the life of U.S. democracy in general, can also, through their solutions, be they charitable, political, organizational, institutional, they wind up reproducing certain assumptions that are not central to the solutions that they devise, but carry forward things that then ultimately undermine them in a historical way. And I, that was something that I was also interested in with this project, was trying to trace the continuities from the progressive era through to the present day. And as I think I do a little bit in the epilogue, talk about how the progressive era is not necessarily this apogee of historic change in the United States, but actually also is the product of its own material conditions and intellectual conditions, that the people who are the progressives are reared in an historical moment in the U.S. when certain assumptions about capitalism and laissez-faire economics are totally incontrovertible for a certain class of people. That is, of course, you know, I mean, there aren't a lot of socialists who believe that the tenets of laissez-faire economics are incontrovertible, <laughs> but the, the people that generally get written about uh, the most in progressive era histories are usually referred to as middle-class progressives. And I think it's important not to lose sight of the lives that those people had that led them to become progressives and the ways that those lives affected their solutions to social problems and social inequality. Andrew and I were discussing the book, um, and one thing we found really gratifying about it is that it has a lot of short chapters. And so this makes us sound like the laziest interviewers ever, but it was a very nice way to read a book where there was a 15-page chapter, and so you felt like a sense of accomplishment. So I was wondering yes, if yes, you... Yes, yes. No, yeah, no, like I was like, in between World Cup games, I can feel like I got something done. <laughs> this, this is, you are, you are totally validating my editor's advice. You know, I have to give credit where credit's due here. My editor, I presented my editor with the dissertation, which was six long chapters. And she said, nobody wants to read a chapter that's longer than 20 pages. Cut these into pieces. And happily for me, each chapter of the dissertation was constructed in such a way as to be relatively easily broken down into three parts. So I don't understand and I have never understood why professional historians feel it necessary to write 50 to 80 page chapters. I think it's totally counterproductive. I mean, maybe I'm sound, I'll sound anti-intellectual saying this, but I feel like it totally ignores the way that people engage with the written word in the 21st century. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who would say 15 pages is way too long. You've got to write, you know, you have to have everything in top 10 lists, and that's the only way you're going to get people to pay attention to it. But, you know, I, I think reading is supposed to be a pleasurable experience, and I have learned more from books that are fun to read than I have from books that are not fun to read. Yeah, I mean, and, reading, in reading your book, I never had that moment where I'm in the middle of the chapter and I turn and be like, how much longer is this going to go on for? Uh, <laughs> which I do with my own book. You know, I'm like, oh, God. You come across some book where it's like an 80-page chapter, and if I can't dedicate an hour and a half of my life to that right. chapter, the book's not going to get read. And to be fair, of course, there are certain ideas that take a longer time to flesh out. There are certain stories that require... I mean, I just think that usually they can be broken down into more manageable slices that are indicated somehow in the text. In what ways was the dis your the book distinct from the dissertation? Did you do more research? Was it mostly about sort of reshaping the structure? Or was were there parts of the argument that changed substantially? So, 
differences between writing the dissertation and the book, it's also something that I thought a lot about before even writing a word of the dissertation, in part because before I came to graduate school, I worked for a literary agency, and I had in my brain when I was applying to graduate school, the idea that graduate school was essentially a long, drawn-out advance on a book. There are pretty significant differences between the dissertation and the book in terms of the amount of time I spend on historiographical questions in the introduction. I mean, the introduction to the dissertation, I think, is almost twice as long as the introduction to the book. And I did do a good deal of additional research for particularly the last two or three chapters of the book. It was about half and half new material on material from the dissertation. I wound up actually, um, I was going to hand my dissertation in in August. And my dissertation committee members in May told me, you know what, I was finishing the fifth chapter and they said, you know what, don't worry about the sixth chapter, just hand it in five chapters and pretend like it was meant to be five chapters all along. And so feeling totally reassured by this, I really focused, I drilled down on the fifth chapter to make it as good as I possibly could, and I got to within five days of when I needed to hand it in, and I went back to my introduction to do the revision that I needed to do in order to justify a five-chapter dissertation instead of a six-chapter, and realized that it would be easier to research and write a six-chapter <laughs> in four days than it would be to transform the introduction so profoundly as to make it a five-chapter dissertation. <laughs> I wound up doing the research and writing for the sixth chapter of my dissertation in the space of four days, uh, mainly on Metro North, back and forth to New York. The chapter wound up being, I think, 37 pages, double-spaced, and was, as I think one of my dissertation <laughs> advisors noted in their reader's report, a bit weaker than the other chapters. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons that I was able to do that at all was that I had been, from the beginning, trying to write the dissertation as a book in the sense of trying to tell stories that would compel readers. And the final chapters, as you know, deal with the major subway strikes of 1916 in New York and the bombing of the Lenox Avenue subway and how to place that in historical context and the way it relates to the end of the progressive era and the resolutions to questions of class and inequality in that moment. And just telling the story of that strike was at that moment enough. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice about the way to think about, you know, your dissertation. Robin Kelly came when I was in grad school and gave a talk when he was working on his Thelonious Monk book. Mm -hmm. And someone asked him a question about Hammer and Ho. And he went back and started talking about the dissertation. And he said, no, never call it a dissertation. You are working on a book. All of you are right. working on a book right now. It's just the only book you get to write two drafts of. Think of it as a book from the beginning. And then think of what a good book is. And right. try to write your dissertation that way. Instead of the idea of the dissertation where you're like, I'm going to put in everything I know, you know, and everything I have collected at the archives onto these pages uh, and create something that is not readable. You don't want your dissertation to be just an information dump. You want it to be uh, a story that people want to read. I think part of the difficulty in coming to that realization, and though as a graduate student, is has to do with the material reality of what your dissertation is supposed to do, right? Is this actually something that I want to have many, many people read and enjoy, or is this simply an instrument by which to gain professional credential and uh, to make myself a viable candidate for 
a job. We are, as historians, as academics, torn, I think, pretty regularly. And I imagine this is the case that just as much for her junior faculty as it is for, for graduate students, although presumably a little bit less. But, you know, as junior faculty, you're thinking about tenure review and what the work that you're doing right now is saying about your positioning of yourself in the field and how you relate to that field. And you can't ignore those questions if you actually want to have a viable career. And the problem is that often the answers that you come up with for those questions conflict deeply with producing an elegant, readable, exciting, and fun book or article for that yeah. matter. And that's a continual frustration that I have and, and a tension that I'm trying to resolve. My, no, no. my question for you was describing some of these issues of finishing your first book, how have they shaped your ideas for your second project? Sure. So my second book project is a social historical biography of this guy named Alfred Winslow Jones, who created the hedge fund but was also a Marxist spy in Nazi Germany. Not simultaneously, <laughs> but he is someone who, in his manuscript autobiography, is obsessed with the idea of class and trying to resolve what class means in the United States and trying to figure out ways of mitigating the inequality and economic chaos that he sees in the first few decades of his life. And in a deeply ironic way, comes up with the hedge fund as a way of stabilizing economic life and stabilizing capitalism. He views the hedge fund as a real stabilizing mechanism. And I think that part of the way that my reading of his life, his ancestry, the way this fits into a larger history of 19th and 20th century capitalist development in the United States, it's a broadening of this kind of tragedy that I see in the progressive era of very good people, very well-meaning people, thoughtful people trying to do the right thing and make capitalism and democracy work in a harmonious way that benefits everybody and producing transformations that wind up recreating some of the dynamics that they're trying to combat. So I think about the second project as an expansion in certain ways of ideas that I deal with in the first. But it's also very much a story about people, again, and identifying stories of people that will compel readers. People make manifest the political dimensions of inequality far more effectively than talking about the state or institutions in the abstract. Talking about people and their experiences of inequality and the way that they try to deal with inequality in their own lives and the way that they experience it, I think makes it more apparent that inequality is a choice that societies make. David, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. The book, again, is Progressive Inequality, Rich and Poor in New York, 1890 to 1920. It is a Terrific book, and it is an enjoyable read. So thank thanks you. again. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having so me. much.